Wow, I like that song. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. That was fantastic. It reminded me of a verse of Scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a, anybody? Give you a future and a hope. So it's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I want to make a couple of words here before I begin my, my message. Uh, Brother Daniel, as you know, I was just praying, praying for you guys while we were overseas, and I rejoice in all the good things that God did in Disciple Now. And I praise the Lord for the salvations and for the lives that were changed, for the number of students who surrendered to the gospel ministry. And so, uh, what, a, what a blessing. Can we just thank the Lord and thank Brother Daniel for what a great weekend we had last weekend? Amen. Wow, I tell you, it's exciting, exciting. Never gets old seeing uh, people get saved and baptized and become a part of our church. Jeff Dillon, thank you for uh, tying those two uh, together. Jeff is one of our uh, deacons and did a great job leading us in prayer a moment ago. And if the deacon of the week not only leads the offertory prayer, but they also help and their wives help us uh, in the baptistry when we have people uh, to be baptized. I tell you, a church this size with the ministries that we have, it takes a legion of volunteers to be able to pull off uh, what we're able to do. And what you don't see sometimes is probably even more powerful than what you do see. There is a group, a, a large group, even now secluded in a room behind me that are operating all the, uh, the, the TV, the internet, and the broadcasting. And I appreciate those guys on the, on the cameras and behind the scenes. And I praise the Lord for you because you expand our ministry greatly, and I thank you. We've got a couple of guests I want to recognize today uh, before I begin uh, this, this message. Uh, Terry Hurt's mom is in the house, and I want to make sure that we recognize Miss Fran. I want you to stand up, and I want us to recognize you. Amen. That is um, also known as uh, Debbie's uh, mother-in-law, and that would be Katie's grandmother. And so, uh, Miss Fran, can I ask you how old you are? She is 79 years old. She looks like she's about 50. I'm, I'm telling you, you, you really do. So, um, I know there's two things you don't ask a lady. I get that, but uh, just we're going to ask her because I'm bragging on her. So. Okay, she's 50 with 29 years experience. Okay, so that's where we get the, the 79. So, uh, Anne Michelle, I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but uh, Jay and Anne Michelle, these are our, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. I want you to stand. We want to welcome you guys today to our church. So, <laughs> praise the Lord for them. Uh, Anne Michelle's on staff at a, at a little mission church up there in the Dallas area called Gateway. I don't know if you've ever seen Gateway or heard about them, about 30,000, 35,000, and she's one of the staff members there, and uh, we just love Jay and Anne Michelle, and they came uh, to visit us for the weekend, and we're glad that they are, they are here with us. So, other guests, um, you want me to interview you for a minute? You me to, <laughs> just kidding. We're glad that you're here. We praise the Lord for your presence. So, Today is been, has been described as, if not the most difficult, at least one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in all the Bible, and especially in the book of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. But when you can figure out the similes and the metaphors, the analogies and the comparisons, I don't think it's that difficult at all once you understand what John is communicating by way of these metaphors and analogies. And so, if you have a Bible, I want to read to you uh, out of the book of Revelation, chapter 12. 
We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. We're going to take two weeks to walk through this great chapter in Revelation chapter 12. The title of the message is War in Heaven, War on Earth, and we're going to look at the first nine verses. I wish I could have got to verse 11 today, but we're going to have to wait till next week. It's one of the high water marks, one of the great passages in all the Word of God, and they overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, and they loved their lives not even unto death. But today, we're going to talk about this cosmic war that I believe has yet to happen. It's going to be in the future, in the time known as the Great Tribulation. But what makes this passage of Scripture initially difficult is the description of the woman, the child, and the fierce dragon. And if we can figure out who these people are or what they represent, again, I don't think it's such a a confusing passage at all. And so I'm excited to be here today. I'm looking forward to sharing this message with you. I finished this message about 10 days ago while I was overseas, and a good friend of mine told me one time, and I I, kind of think he's right, you know, God always hears our prayers, but He especially hears our prayers when we're totally dependent upon Him in an overseas context where we are serving the Lord. And Kyle, I, I think you're right on that. And so I hope this message encourages you. I hope that it, uh, it teaches you. I'm so grateful to God to be a part of a teaching church. We have a teaching church at Great Hills. We love the Bible. We teach through entire books of the Bible. And I'm so honored to be, I, I just want you to know, I'm very honored to serve here as the pastor of Great Hills. Um, especially over the last few days as we are over in this context and and many people are bragging on us and our church and and thanking the Lord for what we're doing and it and it means a lot to us and I know that I speak for Mike and Claudia we we really could not do what we did over the last few days and really only heaven knows all the good things that happen and so it's it's such an honor uh, for our church and our church to have a good name. And our church has a good name throughout the convention, and I praise the Lord for that. So I just want to say, just take a moment and say thank you. God bless you. I love you. And uh, going on five years now, I've had the privilege of being the pastor at Great Hills, and I hope you'll keep me, and please let me continue to preach 45 minutes because that means a lot to me if I'm able to keep preaching God's Word. Thank you. Okay, so we're in chapter 12. I'm going to go ahead and read the text and just try to take a deep breath and take it in, and we'll try to explain it in a moment. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a sign. Please, please underscore that word. There was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign Okay, so a sign is going to represent something else. A sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and His throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years. That's the time frame. Now verse 7, the title of our sermon today, A War in Heaven. And war broke out in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven anymore, any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. Now that serpent of old called, now we're about to find out who the dragon was. It's very clear, very conspicuous. John wants us to know who this evil force, this evil personage was and is. He is called, verse, um, verse 9, the devil, and he's also called Satan. He's really given a threefold description, serpent, devil, Satan, same person, dragon, who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying, in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who have accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And then we go to verse 12. But today, I want us to look at verses 1 through 9, war in heaven and on earth. Just to give you a little of the context of what is going on, we are most likely about in the 3.5 time frame, the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are going to describe the end times and especially the Great Tribulation from the enemy's perspective. Now, in 11.15, chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. And part of the seventh angel's sounding of his trumpet is going to include the seven bowls of judgment that are to come. But before John delineates and shares with us what these future judgments are to come, he takes a moment, it's kind of like he takes a pause, and he describes this cosmic battle uh, in the heavenlies which comes to earth, and there's this fierce dragon. Did you notice the way he's described as fierce and red and having a tail? That's where we get this caricature of the devil. With his horns and with his tail and with the redness of the beast, that's where we get this. Now, does the devil look like that? No. What John has given us is imagery. He has given us something that, that was known not only in mythology, but was known in Hebrew thought, certainly known in Greek thought. This fierce connotation of this, this person, this, the evil personified, the devil, the dragon, the serpent, and he is very prominently featured in chapter 12, and he will be featured all the way up until Armageddon and eventually to the return of Christ in chapter 19. So keep that in mind. Chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel has sounded, the seven bold judgments are coming, but 12, 13, and 14, one writer describes it this way, a sketch of the hidden forces behind the great climax of human history are these three chapters, and of the personages that play a part in this great climax. So first of all, let's look at the woman, the dragon, and the child in verses one through six. And let's try this morning to be good interpreters and try to understand who these people are and what they represent. Now, I understand there are various theories, and, 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 and I know what the theories are, and I know who represents who and that sort of thing, but I'm just going to take the time to share with you what, what I think it is. I, I, over the last few days, I was teaching uh, systematic theology in this country, and I took a group of pastors for two days, and I took them through, and here's what they asked me to teach on, eschatology. And I said, oh, really? And they said, yes, lecture for two days on eschatology. So I took a, a, a marker and wrote on the whiteboard behind me, from creation to the lake of fire. And we covered for two days 
And there was a glazed look in those pastor's eyes and as I looked at them, but, but no, it was, it was exciting. And I, I love the study of eschatology. And what I was able to do is to take them through the last few lectures that I took you through last year in our study of systematic theology. And I found then, as I'm finding here today in America, that people genuinely are interested and what the Bible has to say. And they want to know, well, what do you think, and how would you interpret these, these images here in Revelation chapter 12? So first of all, in verse 1 and 3, he does say, I'm going to show you a sign of these figures and, and what, they, what they represent. So first of all, I want you to look at it with me from the viewpoint of the woman. Who is this woman? Now, many interpretations, but I believe clearly the woman refers to the nation of Israel because of the way that she is described in verse 1. It says, a sign appeared in heaven, there is a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head are the garland of twelve stars. Now go to Genesis chapter 37, I have it on the screen for you, verses 9 through 11, and you'll, you'll recognize this terminology. Now the context is, Joseph has had a dream. And he is telling his dream to his father Jacob, to his mother Rachel, and, and here's what happened. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers, and he said, look, I have dreamed another dream, and this, this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and all your brothers indeed come to bow down to you before the earth? And his brothers envied him, but watch this, his father Jacob kept this matter in mind. John uses the same terminology as Moses in Genesis 37, as Israel is described as in, in, in this way. The father, Jacob, the mother is, is Leah and, and Rachel, and then you have the 11. You said, but it says 11, Brother Danny. But when you include Joseph, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Obviously, he's talking about the nation of Israel. And by the way, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah, all of these scriptures refer to Israel as a woman travailing or a woman uh, in, in labor. She gives birth to a child. And we know who the child was. That's pretty obvious, and it's capitalized in my reading of the Scripture, as it probably is in yours, that the child is the Christ child. Israel is the mother, and she gives birth to the child, Jesus, who's born of the lineage of David from the tribe of Judah. Now, the woman cannot be the church. That would be impossible. The woman cannot be the church because Christ gives birth to the church. The church does not give birth to the, Christ, to the Christ or the child. So look at it like this. In the Bible, the church is called the bride of Christ, but she's never called the mother of Christ. So I think it's pretty easy to understand that in this context you have Israel, the nation of Israel, and the key hermeneutical link, the interpretive link would be Genesis 37 with the dream that Joseph had of his mother, his father, and his 11 brothers. So who is the dragon? Point B. Well, we know who this is. This is none other than Satan himself. And verse 9 tells us as much. And by the way, if you get confused in Scripture, the best principle of hermeneutics, the best principle of interpretation is this. Always let the more lucid, clear passages of Scripture 
identify and clarify for you the more difficult passages of Scripture. And that's precisely what we see happening when John, when he first mentioned there's this fiery red dragon with a tail, you're probably going, whoa, what in the world? Who in the world? But in verse 9, he clearly delineates and said, oh, that's the serpent, that's the devil, that is Satan being described in this fierce way. And, And by the way, the redness, the color of red has this connotation of blood and cruelty. And I know the way he's described here, and we're going to get into this later about the seven heads, the seven diadems, the ten horns. And and let's don't get caught up in that right now because we're going to explain and define that in, in, in the future sermons. But notice it says he has these crowns upon his head. Now these are not Stephanos. These are not victorious crowns. These are diadema. Diadema, and one writer helped me understand this, was a blue band with white marking used by Persian kings to bind on their royal crowns, end of quote. Verse 4 says, the dragon takes a third of the stars with him to earth. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar both in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. The Bible describes the evil one in similar terminology. It describes him as as, as the person in the heavenlies who is cast down by God, and he takes a third of the angels with him. This would be the pre-cosmic fall of the evil one out of the heavens, Lucifer being cast down, and a third of the angels with him. And why was he cast down? And this always fascinates me. Whenever I read it, whenever I think about it, the devil then, just like today and in the future, the thing he wants more than anything is to be worshipped as Almighty God. And because He exalted Himself, God says He will share His glory, His worship with no other, and so He cast Him out of the heavens. Now, it it did not cast Him out of the heavenly realm. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but it cast Him uh, out of heaven. Verse 4 also says that the devil's desire is to devour the child of the woman. Now, that's not hard for us to, to understand either. He hates both the Jewish people. They gave birth. By the way, if you have a problem with that, you need to get over that, okay? If you say, well, I'm not all into that Semiticism and all that pro-Jew stuff and go Israel, go Jerusalem, but you need to be, and here's why. The Bible says pray for the peace of one city in particular. Pray for the peace of, of Jerusalem, and we need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem, Israel, that gave birth to the Messiah. The Messiah was a Jewish Messiah who also, whose reign is over Jew and Gentile alike. And so why would the evil one be so upset with the Jewish people, with Israel? Well, we know why. Because from that lineage, from that posterior, will be born none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about the evil one, in his attempt to devour Israel and to devour this child, I thought about different people, and I thought about Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period. You know, the Old Testament ends in Malachi, and then you have 400 years known as the intertestamental period. After that 400 years, you have Matthew, and the next prophet, really the final prophet on the scene, is John the Baptist. But in this Maccabean period, in this intertestamental period, you have a guy rise up by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who really is a pre-type 
of the Antichrist, and he hates the Jews, and he sacrifices a pig there in the temple in Jerusalem. Then you come on through the centuries, and you see men absolutely filled with demonic spirits like Adolf Hitler, who despise—listen, guys, what nation has suffered more cruelty and torture and hatred than the Jewish people? Can you name anybody? There's really not. There's no nation on the earth with a holocaust and a hatred and a vitriol target against them like the Jewish people. Why? Because they are God's people through whom He is going to bless the entire world. He told us that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, through Abram and his descendants. But the clearest description of the dragon trying to slay at least the child would it be in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16? Would you not agree? You said, I might agree if I knew what Matthew 2, 16 said. In Matthew 2, 16, Herod had systematically all the infants two years of age and younger slaughtered and killed because he was trying to kill what was known as, people said, oh, the Messiah, the King has been born. And so, I believe Herod filled with demonic spirits, is going to try to annihilate and slaughter every child so that he might be able to capture the child, but he didn't. He couldn't because they escaped unto Egypt, God's sovereign hand, guiding his son Jesus to protection. And then you come to the temptation narratives where the evil one appears to the Messiah, to the Christ, and again I see his fangs, I see his attempt to dethrone and bring down the Messiah, and he offers him, listen, if you just just worship me. Or oh, if you'll just bow down. And, that's what he wanted then. That's what he wants now. That's what he'll want in the future. He wants to make himself up to be God, to be worshiped as God. And Jesus said, it ain't going to happen, buddy. Get behind me. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. And Jesus, ooh, but it gets even better. Listen, he couldn't destroy him at his birth. He couldn't destroy him in his ministry. But you know what? I imagine the the demons of hell were having a, a little unholy hootenanny party on that day when the Messiah, the Son of God, bled and he was crucified and they put him in the tomb. And I imagine that the demons of hell were shouting victorious, oh Satan, oh Lucifer, now is your time. We've killed him. He's dead. And then there was a rumbling in the earth, praise God, up from the grave, the Lord Jesus Christ arose. Woo, victorious he arose. And so the devil, he lost then, he lost at Calvary, and he's losing today as we overcome him by that blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and we don't even love our lives unto death. So you have this dragon, and he is bent on destroying not only the mother, but also the child. Who is the child? Well, it's clear. In Psalm 2, 9, it tells us that the Messiah will rule with a rod of iron. And so, in our text, in verse 5, for example, she bore a male child, capital C, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child, watch this, was caught up to God and His throne, Luke 24, 51, Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Other pa uh, passages talk about the ascension of Christ, how after He completed His work on the cross, His resurrection, 40 days of preaching the kingdom of God, and then He ascends 
back to the Father. Now, verse 6 is interesting because it's going to segue and transition to a time, a future time that I believe has not happened yet. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. You hear this, this mathematical statement frequently in Scripture. I translated it a moment ago, 42 months, three and a half years, or 1,260 days. By the way, that is one half of the Great Tribulation. I understand it, I may be mistaken, but this is my interpretation of it, that in the future, during the Great Tribulation, God will preserve those believing Jews in some miraculous way. I believe Jesus hints at it in Matthew chapter 24, during the Great Tribulation, God still has a plan. God still has a protection for that amazing nation of Israel, and He secludes them and protects them for that time frame. So I hope this helps you. I hope that as you're taking notes today, when someone asks you, and someone probably will ask you, as a few years ago when I was walking through the book of Revelation, and I've only done this one other time in my life, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and also the most rewarding in preaching is to walk through the book of Revelation. Let me, let me share something else with you. The most challenging and rewarding thing I've ever done in my life was when I was the pastor at Great Hills Baptist Church. And it's adopting these people. Adopting this people group is the most important thing that I've ever done in my ministry. And God has allowed me to do it and I think he's allowed me to do it now in my 50 years of living because he's, he's given me a church family that, that can trust, that I can trust, and they can say, we free you up. Go and do this. Only heaven knows the extent. Can you imagine? In Revelation 7, 9, as we're gathered around the throne of Jesus, and you look, and there are these Asian brothers and sisters. And you may say, well, I'm from Great Hills. How did you get here? And they'll say, you got me here. <laughs> you got me here. Guys, I tell you, I'm, I'm serious. I'm, God's allowed me to do some, some pretty cool things in ministry, but I've never done anything more cool or more exciting, exhilarating, and difficult than to lead a church to adopt and reach an entire people group for the gospel. Listen, we're not there. We don't really, we don't really know of any... K, I'll just call them the K people, K pastors or K churches, but we see signs, we see rumblings of the Spirit of God. We believe that within three to five months, we are going to actually get to see firsthand some of these people get baptized. And I said, Brother Mike, either you or me or both of us, we got to get over there and videotape it. Can, wouldn't that be awesome? If we, we videotape it, show it on the screen. And you and I get to witness, and guys, nobody's sharing the gospel with these people. A lot of people don't even know these people exist. They're low on the caste system. They're butchers. But here we are on the other side of the planet, and we're getting to reach them with the gospel. Thank you all for letting me share that with you. It had nothing to do with my sermon. Amen. Let me get back to my sermon. War in heaven. Let me, let me go through this quickly. What is this war in heaven? Verses 7 and 8 describe a war I believe has not happened yet. It's around the midway point of the Great Tribulation. Michael, this fierce, awesome archangel, is going to be instrumental in throwing out Satan and his demonic realm out of the heavenly realm to earth. Now, Job tells us, 1-6, even though Satan and his demons are cast out of heaven, they still have access in the heavenlies 
at least to God, because the Bible says Satan comes to God and accuses Job to God, and eventually he will accuse uh, Job for worshiping God. And by the way, that's Satan's number one thing. He wants to accuse us to God, and he wants to accuse God to us. There's coming a day he's cast out. And Michael the archangel, this amazing, angelic, fierce, awesome, created being known as Michael, he somehow is tied up in this war, and he casts out the devil, and they come to planet Earth. And by the way, you don't want to be here when he lands here, all right? You think it's bad now? It's bad. But wait till Satan and his demonic hordes land here on planet Earth. Uh, Daniel's mentioned a couple other times in mysterious ways, and I'm I'm really fascinated with it. I don't understand it completely, but in Jude, it talks about how he contends with Moses' body, and, say, and Michael just finally says, Satan, I'm not going to deal with you. The Lord rebuke you. By the way, that is a great way to deal with him. Say, I'm not going to contend with you, but the Lord rebuke you. And then in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's prayers, it says, was hindered for 21 days by this demonic spirit, and God had to send Michael to conquer the demonic spirit so the prayers of David could go up to the heavens. You say, well, I don't understand that either, but you know what? That Michael is a cool dude. He's a fierce, awesome angel, and he is. And he's going to figure into the future realm in a very conspicuous, prominent way as he binds the evil one. Now, all this talk of demons and Satan and so forth, let me pause here for just a moment. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, this is very important, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he made this powerful statement about the demonic, about the evil realm. And this is so, is so insightful, and I want to quote him when he says, there are two equal and opposite eras into which we, as Christians, we can fall into these eras about the devil. One is to disbelieve in the demons and their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both eras." End of quote. Well, in verse 9, John describes our enemy in, in very picturesque, descriptive phrases. He said, the devil is called the great dragon, the serpent of old. That would be Genesis 3.1, you remember? As Satan enters into that, that serpent, and he says, has God indeed really said? And so already you see him at the beginning. You see his cunning, his twisting, and the thing that he loves to do is question the authority of God and the authority of Scripture. Next he's called the diabolos. The diabolos is the, our word devil. And whenever you see that word, just think about this word, false accusation. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is a liar and the father of it. And he loves to devise schisms and, and lies and, and rumors, especially against God and against the church, God's people. He's called the devil. And then thirdly, he's called, right out of the transliteration of the Hebrew, Satan. Satan. It's, we call it Satan in our English language. Whenever you see that word, just think of the word adversary. He is an adversary who is powerfully positioned and posed 
to be adverse to God and anything that smacks of the divine. One writer puts it this way, he's the master of deception with an uncanny ability to mislead people. It is his chief aim and his chief occupation. I'm going to redact and edit this sermon as I go. I have a whole lot more I would share with you, but if you want the manuscript, you're welcome to have it. All the stories and the illustrations and everything are in here. But I was just thinking about the country in which we just came. And if there's anything just very palpable and very obvious and conspicuous in that country, it is the power of the evil one. 330 million gods and goddesses. And that God, a monkey God, I mean, all kinds of God. There's such a, a, a powerful sense of, of deception. But Jesus reigns supreme. And he is working even in that context of great darkness. But let me ask you this, guys. How are they going to know that they're being deceived? And how are they going to know that God loves them and God has a plan for them unless somebody, somebody rises up and goes and tells them? Somebody shared with me recently, and I think I have the figures correct. And it goes something like this. 90% of all Christian workers work in America, which constitutes only 7% of the entire globe. And it's the most evangelized nation in the world, and yet it has 90% of all the called pastors and preachers. Something doesn't sound right about that. 90% of all of us preachers work among 7% of the people, which is the most evangelized nation in the world. I don't think it's so much as God called us to go, but has God called us to stay? Has God called you to stay? Has He called me to stay? And I, I believe He has. I've really processed this, and I've worked through this, and I continue to struggle with this. God, if that's what you want me to do, then then I will go wherever you want me to go. But best I can tell, He wants me to stay and to go and to pray and to give as much as I possibly can. Let me give you a good story. Let me give you a good way to end this sermon. At least I think it is. And let me let me share this with you. And I hope I hope this encourages you. Okay, because what we're talking about is the enemy, his greatest tactic, his greatest arsenal in his weaponry, it, it would be to deceive. I was reading recently the story of, of Lyle uh, Dorset. And Lyle Dorset, he was a very brilliant, he said, here's, here's how I would describe myself, I was a brilliant, agnostic, arrogant history professor at the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado. He said, you know, I went to church. He said, I was a Sunday school teacher in church. And he said, what I would love to do is go in and twist the Bible and confuse as many people as I can confuse. And he basically said, I was just an ambassador for the evil one. And I just want you to know, by the way, if that's you, you will never teach at Great Hills Baptist Church. We, we want people who love Jesus and love the Word of God. Well, he said, you know, he said, that's just who I was. He says, one night after a heavy binge of drinking, and he says, a, a drunken stupor, I woke up out of that. And in his own words, he said this. He said, I knew I had a fork in the road. I had a choice to make. One way pointed to a broken marriage loss of my university professorship, and skid row, or perhaps death. The other way offered peace, fulfillment, and stability. He said, my wife Mary, saint of God, active in the church, loved Jesus, continued to pray for me. And he said, I had tried everything. 
I've tried willpower, analysis. I even tried health clubs to overcome my drinking. I even tried going to church and tithing. That didn't work. The only option I had not tried was Jesus Christ. But right there in my car, I cried out, oh God, if you are real, if you are there, please help me. And God came out of heaven into that car and saved this alcoholic, drunken, deceived man. And I shared this story with you because today, this guy is in my home state of Alabama, and he is an evangelism professor and a church history professor in Beeson Divinity School, where my brother went to school there at Sanford University. And, I, and I'm just, I'm just kind of smiling about this, because what the devil thought he had and meant for evil, Jesus comes and redeems the man, and now is using him as a trophy of grace for good. And there may be, there may be a Lyle Dorset even in our midst uh, today. Maybe sitting right here before me, or listening on television, or watching us on the internet through multiple ways, whether it's your iPhone, or your iPad, or your computer screen. And maybe you've tuned in, and you, you're like this guy, and you say, well, I've tried everything except the real thing, the main thing. And maybe today, just like this lady that shared with us there a couple weeks ago, you know, we tried all these gods and goddesses, but we called on this God, on the God Jesus, and He, and He alone has intervened. Let me ask it like this. What have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? You've tried everything else. You've inhaled it. You've digested it. You've slept with it. You've done everything that you possibly know to do to get peace and joy and fulfillment. Why not bow your knee and give your life to Christ? You see, there is a battle going on. It's not just this pre-cosmic battle in the past. It's just not this battle in the future. There is a battle right now that is for the hearts and the souls of men and women and teenagers and students and boys and girls. And I just want to say to you today, call upon the name of Christ. He will save you. He will change you. He will redeem you. Mm, what's so good about Him? He will cast your sins to the plummets, to the depths of the ocean. He'll remove them as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says He'll dig them up no more. He'll remember them no more. You will be clean, cleansed, forgiven, have joy and peace, and it comes through one God and one God only, and that's the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I got chill bumps on me when I said that. I'm so glad I know Him. I'm so glad He saved me and changed me, and I'm inviting you to come to Him this very day. Father, we give You praise. We thank You, Lord, for the gospel. We thank You, Lord, for the Word of God. We thank You for the Holy Spirit of God. And Lord, we thank You for the souls of men. And we pray for the souls of men and women and boys and girls within the sound of my voice that are under the deception and the lies of the evil one. And that may be you, friend, with your head bowed and with your eyes closed. That may be you, ma'am. And I want to invite you this very moment, in the quietness of this moment, would you do what this guy did and just say, God, if you're real, God, if you're out there, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? through your son, Jesus. I promise you, friend, if you do that, if you believe, have only the faith of a little tiny mustard seed, you'll be able to move mountains. So why don't you call upon the name of the Lord even now and allow the Holy Spirit of God to come in and radically change you and infuse your darkness with a radiant blast of hope and light. 
Oh, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that there would be people saved and there would be people called and changed, Lord, to take the gospel not only to this great city, but to the cities of this world. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Thank you, God, that you're winning. Sometimes we don't see it in America. We just think you're losing. But God, you lose, and God cannot be put in the same sentence. Lord, you're just that powerful. You're just that awesome. So, Lord, I pray for my people here today, and I ask you, Lord, to give grace and send the power of the Holy Spirit to change and encourage the people that are here. But those, Lord, that don't know you, I'm asking you, Lord, to reveal yourself in power and bring that which is dead to life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,